Welcome back to the second part of my discussion around chronic pain in our pets with Dr. John Ennis from the CVS Group in the United Kingdom and Dr. Duncan Lascelles from North Carolina State University. In our first part, we looked at the past and how veterinarians have been identifying and treating chronic pain. In this episode, we look towards the future and what's on the horizon for control of that pain. So let's get back to our vet visit with John and Duncan. So now I want to shift gears a little bit and start talking about the present and, and the future and the, and the things that we're really excited about uh, that are just around the corner for, for many veterinarians around the world. Monoclonal antibodies or, or MABs are a really a, a still a very new technology, even for human medicine, much less veterinary medicine. So how did we get here and what, what experiences have both of you had with MABs so far? Yeah, th this, is, this has been a very exciting development, Mike. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this, a relatively new development, because it is. I think the first MABs in humans were generated back in the mid-1970s. You know, and that process was, was fairly onerous, um, immunizing a particular species, pulling out the B lymphocytes, um, uh, fusing them with an immortal myeloma cell line um, in order to produce these antibodies. And since then, the technology has really moved on. Uh, we've gone through the phases of decreasing immunogenicity associated with monoclonal antibodies. Um, and now, most recently, technology has advanced even further so that species-specific monoclonal antibodies can be produced in a cost-effective way. So it is, it is a relatively new development, and it's really exciting to see this coming into veterinary medicine. Yes, Duncan, it's interesting. I mean, you, you've summarized the technology uh, advancements beautifully there, but I'm just going to tell a little personal, which is when I was sitting um, in the research group in the rheumatology unit in Bristol with Professor Dieppe and his colleagues, I remember that they'd been over to the American College of Rheumatology meeting and they came back and they presented a sort of summary of the major things that they'd seen. And they were palpably excited because they'd seen presentation of the, the first data blocking tumor necrosis factor in human patients with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, you could see on their faces that this was the dawn of a new era for managing rheumatoid. Um, and of course, that was the revolution in human medicine. It's been going on for 30 years now. So, um, and it, it, I find it just amazing. We're now seeing that technology coming into veterinary medicine uh, because the costs of that treatment back then, you know, 10,000 pounds or dollars a year for a human patient. And now we're seeing uh, these products arrive in veterinary medicine for an absolute fraction of that. And it's just incredible. It really is very exciting. And then superimpose on that the, the general characteristics of monoclonal antibodies. They are specific, generally tend to be long-acting, um, can be given by injection, and don't cross the blood-brain barrier. They have a lot of, a lot of uh, exciting properties when we start to think about bringing them into veterinary medicine. So how do you think that's going to change uh, your research going forward, uh, Duncan, you know, as we've kind of progressed from really kind of a, a, a small molecule focus, and now that uh, the, that targeted approach with monoclonal antibodies is here, do you expect that to have a significant change on your research focus? 
Well, uh, I, I, I absolutely do. Um, the immediate thing I think of, Mike, when I think about when you ask that question, how is it going to change my research, is I now have a tool that robustly produces pain relief for a long period of time. And one of my interests is in developing ways to measure pain. It's difficult to, to develop ways to measure pain unless you have the ability to robustly alleviate pain. And so suddenly now I have a great tool and I can really start to evaluate and validate ways to measure pain in cats. And just to briefly talk about the efficacy, the efficacy of the anti-NGF monoclonal antibody in cats is robust. It's, it is obvious. And so for me, it's a very exciting um, start of the next round of developing assessment tools. John, you've had uh, a lot of experience with the, the anti-NGF MABs in dogs. Yes. Yeah, so uh, thanks, Duncan. We, we've had um, anti-NGF monoclonals for dogs for over, well, coming up for a year now, I suppose, it, in the UK. And, um, you know, I've, I've got considerable number of patients that are on that treatment. And, you know, it's been very impressive. I saw a Springer Spaniel a few weeks ago, uh, owned by an older couple, fairly local to our clinic. And this Spaniel just uh, would not move. Um, and, you know, presented actually as a neurology referral. Uh, because it was just lying down and would not move. But neurological examination uh, was within normal limits. And um, actually, this dog had multifocal severe osteoarthritis and just had acutely decompensated. Um, and we gave it some short-acting analgesics, but we also gave it some anti-NGF. And it was in the hospital It was for a couple of days because it was that bad. Uh, but within a couple of days, this dog was like a different dog. Um, and it stayed on the anti-NGF monoclonal. The owners have been back in touch with me, and they say they have their old dog back. You know, and they were on the verge of euthanizing uh, that particular patient because nothing else was touching it. So that's a sort of story, I think, that get, kind of hopefully conveys the impact that this new treatment can have on very severe cases. So, you know... I just think it's uh, it's very exciting because suddenly we've got something that really has a big impact. I mean, the non-steroidals have been great and they will be great for lots of dogs going forward. But I think the, the impact of the anti-NGF monoclonal is just another step up from what I've seen so far. And that class I, I was teaching earlier in the week, you know, I was asking them their experiences. And you, you again, you could sense their excitement about having this new medication available to them and i just want to bring the conversation back to cats as i as i feel yeah. i have to <laughs> um and well so the 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 non-steroidals have been incredibly incredibly useful um, and they are effective in cats with osteoarthritic pain there's no doubt about that but i think what the the, the one point i want to make here is we have relied so long on oral administration of analgesics in cats. I was diagnosing OA in cats, and I thought nothing of it. I'd send them home. I was doing that for years until one day I had to medicate my own cats. And that's when I realized the burden on owners of medicating cats orally. You know, we all know owners who can medicate their cats really well, um, but 
honestly, for the vast majority of owners, it's a burden. So now we come to um, the anti-NGF monoclonal antibodies, as I mentioned earlier, these are given by injection. We're bypassing that oral route, which is really decreasing the burden on owners of oral medication. And actually, it's helping to maintain and improve that owner-pet bond, which can so easily be disrupted by trying to force medication <laughs> uh, you know, into cats. Yeah, on the cat side, you know, we talked about how um, chronic pain can can destroy the bond, but having that ugly interaction two, three times a day of cramming pills down a cat's throat to treat it can also be just as disruptive. That's absolutely right. And I, uh, I mean, like most veterinarians, I, I have my share of scars on my uh, <laughs> my hands and and forearms, and I I think roughly half of them can be attributed to trying to pill a cat. So I know exactly what you're talking about, Duncan. So I I recently partnered uh, with the Human Animal Bond Research Institute, Habri, and um, we uh, conducted a global survey to to learn about. Uh, pet owners and veterinarians and their understanding of the bond. And the results were really fascinating. Pet owners in Brazil and China are just as highly bonded with their pets, if not more so, than pet owners in the U.S. and U.K. and other European countries. So this is definitely not just a Western phenomenon. And a huge part of my early career in industry focused on educating veterinarians and staff about managing pain. So how do we keep raising this standard of care with regards to pain management in other parts of the world because they're expecting these solutions as well. Maybe you can offer some insights as to uh, different ways that we can work together to to raise standard of care uh, uh, for uh, pet owners around the world, especially as it relates to managing pain. I think um, there are some tools that we use now at the internet, um, webinars, uh, going online has really opened up the planet to CPD, continuing education. Um, so, you know, during lockdown, I've been sitting in my office at home and I've done webinars uh, in Eastern Europe and in uh, Asia. And, you know, th this is how I think uh, information is going to get to all corners of, of the world. Uh, and Duncan, you know, Duncan uh, has a platinum card with nearly every airline in the world. You know, he he's he's been flying around the world f for a couple of decades. But um, you know, that's going to change. And now we're reaching people much more efficiently. As Duncan will know, I was involved in developing an owner questionnaire. That owner questionnaire is now translated into about twenty different languages. And I I think the the that rate of catch up is is going to be quicker. It's going to accelerate because of these various uh, ways that we can connect with people much more easily. Um, so, Mike, I think you're absolutely right. The, the the appetite is there across the globe in in other countries and other territories, and the the standard of veterinary education is going up and up and up, which is fantastic. I think that's one of the few silver linings, uh, really, to the pandemic is we've gotten so accustomed over the last two years to using technologies like Zoom, not just for, for meetings and standard communication, but to educate with. And uh, in fact, Duncan and I are working on a project right now to provide a three-day webinar uh, for Chinese veterinarians. Uh, 
that model, that template can be easily replicated in any language in any part of the world. So these technologies, I think, are making it much, much easier for us to bring that standard of care, if you will, uh, to the masses, no matter where they are in the world. Yeah, and as John mentioned, I've been lucky enough to, to, to travel to various parts of the world. Um, and I totally agree, the appetite is there and the knowledge is there. I think it's important to emphasize as we use these varying platforms, whether it's in-person, webinars, uh, written materials, as we use these platforms um, to educate, that education is actually a two-way street. Um, you know, we have a lot to learn from individuals, from veterinarians in, in other parts of the world. And then together we combine that information, as was mentioned, get it translated into local languages and we all move forward. I, I, I often say nothing good has come out of the pandemic, but some good things have. Yeah, you know? yeah. um, our, our understanding of how to leverage technology to engage with our colleagues across the globe. So what, what do you think is next um, in this space of veterinary innovation? You know, we're now talking about uh, monoclonal antibodies. We're going to be talking about targets for future monoclonal antibodies. So what do you see in the not too distant future? I mean, I, I, you mentioned monoclonal antibodies. I think we'll probably see a move towards bispecifics, tri-specifics. So, you know, targeting a number of different molecules at the same time. Um, I think we'll see longer acting monoclonal antibodies being, being developed. Um, I guess, you know, other, other exciting developments for the future that I see are the way we are going to harness AIML, so uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning. We're going to harness that to improve our ability to measure pain. I keep coming back to measuring pain. That's so fundamentally yeah. important. Um, and, you know, to have robustly efficacious tools like these anti-NGF maps um, we can now really start to leverage sensor technology, whether it's wearable or implantable. Um, we can start to harness our ability to capture large volumes of data, apply AIML to that. Um, and I think we'll, we're going to see some really exciting developments uh, in our ability to measure pain across different diseases in, in the whole spectrum of species. And you have to wonder, as we get more and more targeted and more and more specific, if that's not going to yield certain biomarkers that we can identify in the blood or saliva that may be uh, extremely sensitive uh, to the development of osteoarthritis and, and pain. Yeah, I mean, I did quite a lot of biomarker um, research around OA, um, and, and I'll be honest, um, perhaps ended up being a little bit frustrated by that work, but, but perhaps I was doing that work too early. I think the, the technologies that now exist are much more sophisticated um, and this sort of agnostic approach to finding biomarkers um, using metabolomics, proteomics, uh, you know, the technology has advanced so much that our ability then to, to sift through those data in a very sophisticated way um, and apply algorithms to those data is so much better now. So I am hopeful um, that, you know, we will see advancement in biomarkers around osteoarthritis for sure, and we'll be able to pick up disease much earlier, um, which would be a good thing because hopefully 
we will become very targeted not only around the pain of osteoarthritis but also the the underlying disease process and we're st- we're starting to see some signs of that um, some small molecules really having quite an impact in animal models of osteoarthritis in terms of slowing the progression of pathology within the joint so if if we can you know bring this fantastic pain technology together with uh, medicines that really do work to slow down uh, the biological processes within the joint then i think uh, the future for dogs and cats that are prone to oa is much much brighter but i, I think you know beyond arthritis as you've alluded to mike where we're going to see a whole revolution uh, in terms of veterinary medicine and you know cancer has to be towards the top of of that in terms of targeted ways to to treat canine and feline cancer and all all the vaccine technology that's been developed during the pan, during the pandemic is going to filter down to animals too um so there's there's a lot to look forward to i think John, I'm glad you brought up disease modification uh, there in in your last comments, because at the end of the day, even though this is an incredibly exciting time, as as we feel more and more confident in our ability to manage chronic pain in dogs and cats, we, we still haven't found a way to successfully modify the disease. That's the holy grail, right? So we, we've got more work to do. This isn't the time for any of us to, to rest. Until we can find a predictable and safe way to modify the disease, uh, then, then there's still more for us to do. And so I, I'll tell you what, I have really, really enjoyed spending this time uh, with both of you. Thank you, Mike, and thank, thanks for inviting me to this podcast because it's been a, a privilege to share some time with you and Duncan and, um, and reflect on where we've come from. There's been a lot of change and many, many people in and, in and around the veterinary profession have contributed to that. I'm very excited and I haven't been this excited about you know going into the clinic and managing OA patients uh, before, actually, because we've got you know, an increased array of options in front of us to choose from and some good new tools and we'll have more coming. So this is a very exciting time and it's been it's been great to chat this through with you guys. Yes, thanks, Mike and John. Uh, great conversation. We are in the middle of a desperately exciting time now. We have new tools um, and we have a robust multidisciplinary and global approach to, to research, to development of therapeutics, to the measurement of pain, and to the better understanding of the clinical use of these tools to alleviate osteoarthritic pain. Uh, so it's a, it's a wonderful era to be in, and the future looks very exciting as well. Well, once again, thank you both, Duncan and John, for uh, being on Vet Visit today. Very much appreciate uh, your in, uh, your insight and expertise, and I look forward to a chance to talk to you again in the not too distant future. Thanks again, Dr. Ennis and Dr. Lascelles, for that in-depth discussion. In our next episode, I make a virtual vet visit to Brazil for a conversation with Dr. Alessandra Merlot as I continue to explore the state of veterinary medicine around the world. At Zoetis, our purpose is to nurture our world and humankind by advancing care for animals. I'm Dr. Mike McFarland, and I hope you'll join me at the next vet visit. <laughs>